So the scripture is at page 812 in the Black Bibles. Be Matthew 7, 15 through 23. Beware of false prophets who come in you, to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased trees bear bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Now everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter to the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is the word of the Lord. Well... That's a scary text from the Bible. Um, good morning. Welcome to Soma. And uh, let's jump into false teachers and God denying people before the throne of God. Pray with me because we need it. All right, Father God, um, Lord, I, uh, I see so much life in these words. And like so many times before, Lord, there's texts that can be that which repel us away from you, but man, to really look into them deeply, I find them to be some of the most compelling texts towards you, and I find this one to be no different. Lord, I also think that we come to these words with a lot of preconceived notions of what's going on, and I think there might be a lot of what you're not saying being what we think you're saying. And so, Lord, I pray that you give us ears to hear what you're actually saying in these words, not what you're not saying. And I think in that, Lord, you'll do the work of, of giving us life, of giving us freedom. And so, Lord, we pray for your spirit to do the work of interpreting correctly, of, of preaching and proclaiming the word, of, of receiving the word in our minds and our ears and our lives. And there's no amount of human pressure to do all that, which is what makes this a much more joyful and doable job. Uh, when we can lean fully onto you. And so I pray that I do that. I pray that uh, all of us together in this room do that. Uh, And we might be shaped more like you uh, because of this. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know why we love what we love, but I do know that I love maps in all their shapes and their sizes. I love maps, global maps, national maps, state maps, Google maps, like, you know, digitalized maps. I, I spend an inordinate amount of time looking at maps, and it comes from my childhood when I was given a map, a world map, on my wall, which is pretty much a way that my parents probably just didn't know how to decorate my room and had an old map, and they put it up, but Whatever the cause was, I'd get up high on my bunk bed 
And I would get on the top because I don't know why I put this map up high so that I could only see it from the bunk bed. And I get up there and I would study the globe. And I remember spending a lot of time looking for, I found South Sandwich Islands, which when you're a kid, man, finding anything named Sandwich Islands, you're like, well, that's, that's the most amazing thing that there is. And I thought, man, you know, there's South and North Dakota, there's South and North Carolina, there's West Virginia and, and regular type Virginia. You know, there's got to be a North Sandwich Island. I looked for years for the North Sandwich Islands. Let me save you some time. Don't exist. But there's just something about not only maps, but just like knowing where things go and knowing how things relate to each other. I mean, this is how much I love maps. When I went to college, I had to get a shower curtain to cover up my, um, my closet because it had no door. And I found one that was just a big global map. And not only did I have that all through college and love that so dearly, but then when my wife and I got married, every single piece of decoration that I brought into the marriage has been taken down, burnt, or thrown away. And except for the one thing we've held on to is the map shower curtain. But you won't find it if you just go into our bathroom Because the compromise was it doesn't get to be the external shower curtain. It's the internal shower curtain, (laughs) which is such the better deal for me. Because I know I'm bordering on TMI here, but all shower long, when the conditioner is setting, I don't care. I'll do it for six minutes, and I can stare at this map and learn so much of countries and seas that I had no clue up near Russia. And it's a pastime for me. And part of it probably just comes from, I I just like, you know, this is why I like to run and to bike and to go to a city and to, like, it's not just transportation for me or exercise for me. It's also just like going down roads and figuring out how they connect and which ones don't connect and and the adventure of all that to me. And I, I, I know I'm just someone too that just like, I just get directions. Like that just feels like north to me. You say north and it just feels like I get pulled that way. Some of you just learned that for the first time. And, 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 you may not be inclined towards maps like I am, but there is something universal to all of this that I realize, and that is my love for maps in the many ways is just a love for knowing where things are, knowing where I am, knowing my bearings and, and how other things relate to me. And that, that's really human. Like, everybody wants that. Everybody wants to know where we are and have bearings, and, and know where things are and relate to us. We want to know how to get where we are to where we want to go. And, and to do that beyond just, like, geography with maps, I mean, you need to do with everything. Like, you are living life right now, and you're making choices. And the choices you make, the, the ways that you decide to go, the decisions or the indecisions that you do will inevitably lead you to a result. And all of us desperately want to find the good life, the life that we feel like we were made for and and that which we feel like we will experience the most amount of blessing in. The problem is, is that's harder than ever before to figure out where to go. And a lot of it is just because the time that we live in, and we live in like a time of crazy globalization. And so... There's a lot of cool things that happen from that. You can eat bananas year-round, and there's not a lot of banana trees in Indianapolis, you know. 
And, and that's really cool. And there's tons of stuff that we love of globalization. But one of the things that is, I think, causing such of the frustration of our world today, and I mean like the culture of outrage that I've talked about so many times, and you've probably talked about several times, is just the sense that now all of a sudden the entire world is connected. And we've learned there's a lot of different worldviews that are competing to be the primary worldview. The primary sense of who we are, where we come from, who we are, what does it mean to be good or, or, or bad or, or just be uh, uh, right with reality? And, and then where are we going? That's the essential four questions of a worldview. They're all trying to, to answer it in different ways. And, and the problem is, too, is like everyone's kind of giving you competing ideas. I mean, I don't even have to get into a controversial topic to tell you about this. I can just talk to you about food. Like every year they release foods to eat and foods to not eat. And every year, last year's foods to eat are now on the list of foods to no longer eat. Like, what do you do with coconut oil? Do you eat it or will it murder your children? I don't know. And I'm just trying to, like, do you eat eggs? Do you not eat eggs? Is fat good? Is fat bad? Do, does anybody know what the world to do with any sort of carb? I mean, we are in a confusing time, and it's all because of like, hey, this information is interpreted by this person, and the same person takes that same information and interprets it completely in a different direction. And so all of a sudden we realize, man, like, it's not just a base of like figuring out, okay, let's just get all the information in the room, and now we'll know how, which way to go. It's also based off of who, who's telling you where to go, what do they see? How are they reading the tea leaves? How are they reading the information? That's ultimately what's going on in this passage. Jesus uses the word prophet, and it immediately makes us check out and put him in a category of just like, I don't know, describing people with crazy beards and dreams thousands of years ago. But the thing is, our world is full of prophets. We don't call them prophets. We call them, some of them we call them preachers or pastors. Uh, We also call them national best-selling authors. We call them podcast hosts. We call them scientists. We call them mentors, teachers, professors, gurus. I mean, the world is full of prophets because ultimately we are a people that is longing to be told, where do I go? How do I get the good life from where I am? And who can give me some sort of map to get there? But every map requires a map maker. And that's who all these people are in our lives. And and so we have to do something with Jesus' teaching where he's going to say, hey, uh, you need to be really careful with whose information you're taking in because unlike the popular cliche, all roads don't go to the same place. There's lots of different ways to go and they lead to very different destinations. And, and, And part of it is we... I think a good, the good thing of globalization is it taught us, like, hey, there's, there's some good things to, like, just even knowing, like, hey, I, I grew up and I had some assumptions, and just that was just true, and everybody around me said that was true, and then I either went to college or moved away or went to a new place or met a new friend, and all of a sudden they had a different set of assumptions. And I realized, hey, some of those things are also true, and, and, and I need to all of a sudden put these together in certain ways, but, but it has made us no more able to be able to figure out, like, okay, is, is there truth at all? And if so, then, then who speaks for it? Because again, we've got all these prophets, and maybe they don't claim to speak for God, but they claim to speak for truth in some way or another. 
I heard a podcast the other day, and somebody said, like, hey, I'm not a moralist. And I said, like, I know what you're trying to say. Like, you're saying you're not a person who just thinks, like, we need to legislate uh, pot just because that's morally wrong or whatever. Uh, but, but you are a moralist. Everyone's a moralist. Because at the end of the day, moralism is just means what do you view as right or wrong? And I don't care who you are. You have a definition of what is right and wrong, even if it is wrong to declare right and wrong. Ultimately, that's a moral decision. And so... Jesus is going to give us in this moment uh, a really wary caution. In fact, this whole beware, um, it's interesting. That word appears six times in the book of Matthew. It's all going to relate to people trying to teach or lead you in some way, particularly the religious teachers and leaders. It's going to show up in chapter 6. We already read through that, and it's going to say, beware of the hypocrites who are are one way on the inside and a completely different way on the outside. And then in 7, you get two more of the bewares and then what we just read about false prophets false people leading you where to go in life. And then in chapter 10, you'll get um, beware of those who are going to persecute those who are just trying to follow Jesus and make his way known to others. And they say, that, hey, they're going to bring you into your syn- their, their synagogues. They're going to be those leading the synagogues, and they're going to be the ones persecuting you. And then chapter 16, you get three bewares, all related to what they call the leaven of the Pharisees. Jesus is going to use that. It's basically a metaphor for the teaching says, hey, when somebody teaches you, that's like yeast that goes into you, and it's going to expand in your soul. So beware of it. And not only is he going to say this in the book of Matthew, I mean, this is a really big biblical theme. I mean, you're going to see in Deuteronomy 13, God's going to talk about, hey, if a prophet or a dreamer dream, uh, dreams, uh, sorry, a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and that sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass. So not the ones who don't come to pass, but the ones who do come to pass. And if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to his words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. In Jeremiah, he says, and the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. They are prophesying to you lying visions, worthless divinations, and the deceit of their own minds. Like, okay, well, that's fine. That's, that's when we expect prophets to show up. That's Old Testament stuff. I mean, they even call the, I mean, Jeremiah's a prophet. You know, I mean, Moses in Deuteronomy, he's a prophet. I mean, these guys are all prophets. Of course, they're dealing with prophets. New Testament, though, they keep showing up. Second Timothy 4, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. That's a word for us. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. In Second Peter, but false prophets who arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who, uh, who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and follow, or many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. And in First John, Beloved, I mean, he's just talking to people and he says, hey, I love you. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God for many false prophets have gone out into the world. I mean, there's, there's others. I, I'm just trying to paint the idea that this is a biblical theme that we don't talk a lot about. <laughs> and possibly because like this is dripping with irony. I'm teaching you from the Bible, speaking apparently from God, telling you to not listen to people who claim that they are speaking for God. I'm aware of that. It's a very self-conscious sermon for me. But the fact is, is, this is a really big deal, and here's why. Because just like we talked about last week, ultimately these people, uh, people are going to always be pointing you to something. 
I had a, a conversation with an atheist in Berlin, Germany one day, which was an interesting way how we got there, but we did. And, and we were talking about just faith and life and what he believed and what I believed. And, and we just talked really robustly. I mean, we just said really clear, hey, this is what I believe. I disagree with you here. He said the same to me, but it was in a way that we were really enjoying the, the time together. And as we parted, he said, hey, just do me a favor. Just if you have kids, don't raise them in a way that you try to tell them, like just allow them to develop their own ability to see their world and, and what they deem is right and what's not right. And I said, hey, okay, I guess, but in some way, like, I, I, that's impossible. Because every moment of every day, we are being shaped by people's view of how to live, how to be. I mean, if you watch anything, if you talk to anyone, if you in, have any sort of conversation with anyone, it's wrought with, this is the way I think we should live when it comes to this area, or, or this, is, this is how reality, I think, is, should be seen. I mean, the fact is, I understand what he's trying to do. Like, you want some level for people not to be persuaded by false teachers. And, and there's the fact is, when you come into life and you have a context and everybody's telling you something, you just kind of believe it. But the fact is, is, like, that's just the way that life works. Because think about the opposite. I don't tell my kids anything. I try to keep them, I, if somehow, if that's possible, I keep them learning of any sort of way to interpret the world. And they just have to walk through life, and you've got to figure it out. I mean, think about hitting puberty. And this is the time where all of a sudden you have to start, like, figuring out who you are in the world, how you go forward, and you're supposed to do that without any sense of, like, navigation. Or, or I mean, who in their 12-year-old self could have come up with a really coherent worldview? Much less compelling. And... The problem is, is though, as you make these choices, as you're filled with people who are going to lead you, and I think you have to have people, you have to, you have to, you can't just be a point out in outer space. You have to aim towards something. He says, hey, hey be careful because there's some of them that are going to lead you to life and always good and how you're meant to be. But there's a really broad road. A lot of people are going to find it. In the end, it's just going to lead to death and destruction. Or as we said last week, not just like, oh, it eventually shows up and, oh, this was the wrong way. But you make choices and a year goes by or 10 years go by or 20 years go by and you have that moment of realizing of like, hey, what have I been aiming at and has it made me more human or less? So Jesus is going to say, hey, this is a really big deal, but not just because like of the consequences, also because of like how tricky that it, this is to spot them. And this, for, I'll jump back into our text at verse 15, where Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So this illustration, this metaphor that Jesus uses is actually not original to Jesus. It's not original Christianity. As far as we know, hundreds of years before, in Aesop's fables, he was using a, a, a wolf in sheep's clothing metaphor. This wasn't just a Christian idea. This was just a all thinkers tend to agree that there were certain times people who appeared less dangerous than they are. I mean, even now, like very much so people, you don't have to be a Christian to kind of just like recognize the idea that a wolf means someone who is someone not to be trusted, is someone who is out for the disinterest of another and is possibly cunning in the way that they go about it. And to talk about a sheep or a lamb is like the essence of vulnerability and innocence and gullibility and one who is in danger and needs someone to protect it. 
And so he says, hey, the, the scary thing about the whole idea is that not all wolves are going to look like wolves, at least not the talented ones. But here's what actually is, I think, just really working on me about this idea of, of, of wolves who look like sheep. It means it can be anyone. And I mean anyone. I don't think that wolves think they're wolves. And the idea, actually, that he says, hey, they're ravenous, that doesn't obviously mean like sinister or conniving. It it means that they're hungry. It means that they're starving for, I don't know, a sense of approval? A a, a sense of, of control or a sense of, being able to feel like they understand the world or, or that people affirm the way that they understand the world or, or, or sometimes people just desperately want to be liked and be around people who know them and care for them. I mean, oh, I, I'm trying to actually not point these out as bad desires. I think these are good desires and here's actually what you should be feeling. These are your desires and my desires. Because we don't know if we're not them. I watched um, Infinity Wars, Avengers movie, and I've already preached about uh, I, don't, I don't love superhero movies. And you're like, well, then why do you keep going to them? Because I listen to false teachers in my life. And <laughs> either way, this one was actually, there was some, there was, it was good. It was actually good. And there was parts I just checked out for whole portions of it because they're blowing stuff up, whatever. Uh, give me the score at the end. I don't care. And, but there was a character of the villain, Thanos. He's intriguing to me. I'm not going to spoil it for you because this is just the basic plot of the film. He's the villain and he's trying to get enough power to be able to wipe large swaths of humanity off of the world. He's simply trying to create a genocide. But if you listen to him throughout the course of the movie, he actually gives you his worldview. He doesn't do it just like, oh, like Thanos, why are you trying to just kill huge hordes of people? It's not because, like, well, I just like killing people, and I like it when they, like, you know, squish behind, between cars and make funny noises. It's, it's more of a sense of, like, no, I, I, this world is eating itself. People are, are warring against each other. There's not enough resources to go around, and, and I'm just trying to do what I think everybody, any sane person who's looking at this information would do. And that's we need less people to go around so that those who live on this world can truly live. There'd be less starving. There'd be less fighting for good health. There'd be less who are, who are neglected by parents. He thinks he's being the savior of the world. I can't believe Hitler was any different. Nobody commits to genocide thinking, oh, I'm just going to be evil. They commit to genocide because they think they're the ones who see rightly. And so it becomes the really scary reality. Yes, maybe I'm not trying to conjure up genocide, but I think Jesus is talking about a range of people that falls well short of that. And and this isn't just a question of like, hey, the whole time you just apply this to my life because I'm the one teaching right now. You should. You should be applying everything I say to me. Everything that I've said, I have thought through the filter of people need to put this up to my life. And so now you can spend the whole sermon of game theory of like, well, did I only put part the, forward, the points that I think that I'm going to like out smelling like a rose with or whatever? Whatever. I, 
you'll see what I have, and then you'll see if you think I'm trying to hide. But I think you also need to be applying it to yourself. Everybody at some point is going to teach someone. There's people who are going to be behind you that you're going to come and say, hey, I have experience here. Come and follow me. Uh, You do that with your kids. You do that in discipleship. You do that in your missional community. You do that anytime you just stand up and say, hey, this is what I'm doing in my life. This is a choice I'm intentionally making. And I think others should consider it too. And the question is, is, how do we know we're not false teachers? How do we know we're not taken in by false teachers? It's exactly what Jesus is getting into with the rest of the time. He doesn't leave us with no uh, framework to, to walk through this together. So verse 16. After talking about them being sheeps and, uh, or wolves in sheep's clothing, he says, you'll recognize them. How do you want to know if you're there? How do you know that they're, they're actually a wolf and they're not uh, appearing to be so on the surface? You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree uh, bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. I feel like I'm in a Dr. Seuss book now, but at the same point, the point that he's trying to make is that this metaphor he puts forward, which is just Jesus' teaching tool all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Hey, here's a teaching and here's a metaphor. And metaphors are amazing because they're so multifaceted. Like you can't reduce them into one thing. Like Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. That's a metaphor. And some people have tried to reduce it. Like, okay, what's just the one thing that that person's trying to communicate? That's my type A people in the room. And and they'll say like, well, the shepherds lead people. And so that means God leads me. The problem is, is doesn't a shepherd also mean that he feeds you? Does it mean that he cares for you? That he protects you from danger? Does it also mean that he's near to you, just like a shepherd eats and sleeps and lives his whole life caring for his sheep? And so if you just say, hey, uh, Lord is my shepherd, that means he leads us, completely reduces it down to such a small vision of what it was meant to be. Metaphors are meant to be multifaceted. There's probably many that you could draw out from the metaphor of fruit, but I think there's two that people have really keyed in on, and they're really, I mean, I didn't even have time for two last time, so we got to go on these. So either way, so two that I want to point out, and the first one that people tend to recognize is like, okay, this whole tree and fruit metaphor is like, okay, if a person is a tree, then what comes out of them, their fruit, is their character. And that makes sense because Galatians 5 is going to talk about the fruit of the flesh, which is like a whole bunch of stuff you don't want to be doing. But then it's going to talk about the fruit of the Spirit, which is love and faith and hope and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. And I got off. There's nine, but you know what I mean. They're all going to talk about ways that you live. They're going to be character. That, that, do I see love and kindness and gentleness? Do I see this person being faithful? Do I see them being a good person? Do I see them having self-control? They're, they're, they're ways that you live as your character. And so, I mean, Anyone who you are learning from regularly, it's important to be on some level, be able to judge how they live their life. How do they spend their money? How do they spend their free time? How do they interact in their relationships? How does their marriage work? How do they interact with their kids? I, uh, I think a lot about my kids because there's just a lot of pastor's kids I know that are, are horrible people, if I'm frank. And, uh, and, and I don't know if it's even that. It's just that they, they, they seem to really hate their dad and Jesus. 
And I don't want that. I mean, I don't want to gain so many people that I can help and shepherd if I lose my own family. And I think about actually a pastor who said that when, he, when his wife was pregnant with their first, I mean, he just said he like, just like, I got to like figure out how to, you know, you know, love my kids well and, and do this in a way that they walk out of this at least with some hope to love Jesus. And so he said he just started asking question after question uh, to different church leaders who seem to have like really healthy families. And then he talked to like ones of, like who saw people have really unhealthy families. He's like, okay, what is it? Like, how do you, like, what's the trick? Like, what do you do? And he, he expected to hear like, oh, well, you know, like these people just work really long hours and they never have time for their kids. And, and that was a part of what was saying, what, what was being said. But he said what was actually said was the same word. Every single pastor said the same word, hypocrisy. He said, if you, if you preach beautifully on Sundays, but your life reflects none of it, your kids will find your teaching in Jesus completely repulsive. If you can teach a powerful message about forgiveness, but you're bitter towards your, those around you, you're bitter towards your wife, your marriage is on, on the rocks constantly because of just fighting and, and, and you can't continually love the people closest around you like you can teach everyone else, then there's no power to what you're talking about. There was a pastor who I heard speak, um, he was a part of our church playing network, and I was at just a conference and they had just one of, you know, one of our own, kind of like, you know, he's a pastor in this network, and whenever somebody's going to speak, they always give introductions, you know, like this is, it's basically like a commercial for why you should listen. And it's just the sense of like, you get up and be like, hey, this person like, you know, is like, has this book and it's killing it on the New York Times bestseller list right now. Or, or you know, he had this and it's just like this podcast is just like people are downloading this and, and, you know, he, you know, he's doing all these things. This church is growing like this. You have all these numeric reasons. And, and the guy who introduced him, he did something I had had not seen before. I'd not heard this. The guy who was speaking had six kids. And so he said, I, I emailed all six of his kids. He said, I know all his kids. I know them well enough. And so I emailed the kids and I said, I want you to write my introduction for this guy. And so all six kids combined to just say, this is our experience of our dad. And they all just talked about like, this is our dad and this is how he loves us. This is how he cares for us really well. This is how he, this is how he makes Jesus look really attractive because he doesn't just believe it and can expose, expose it from a pulpit and, and make other people believe it, but he actually is an imperfect man. I mean, man, he's struggling to, to look like Jesus, but every day he's trying to look like Jesus, and he starts with us. I mean, these were like middle schoolers and, and elementary school kids and, and high schoolers saying this stuff, and, and every pastor in the room was leaning in because, man, there's We've heard all the, this guy's selling books like crazy, and, and this person's growing a church like crazy, and all of us know we can do that and be a total fraud. But man, there's not a lot of us that get introduced in the sense of like, man, this, this is their kids, and, and, and this is why you should listen to what he has to say. There's something so powerful. And I'm not saying, man, if there's a pastor and his kids aren't following Jesus, I'm not saying that he's a false teacher. There's a whole lot of reasons that go into that. And, and I never want my, my kids to feel like they are my calling card for why people should listen to me. In fact, if I parent them like that, that's one sure way they will not be happy. But it's something to look at. To just, to know 
what's this person actually believe? And what's the fruit that actually comes out of their life? Listen to me. This is why it's really important to be a part of a local church. Right now, people are like questioning the whole idea of a local church, and I get it. They're like saying like, man, like, I, I could podcast sermons online. I, I, I can serve through nonprofit organizations. I, I have friends. I'm in relationship with people. I can be in diverse relationships if I live in a city. I mean, my neighborhood is maybe more diverse than anything else. And, and, and you're saying I need to come to this building? And there's a whole lot that could go into that question. But, but here's one thing that I think is really important to know. You need to be in a context where you can know the leadership enough to know if these things are true about our lives. And you, I can't know all of you. Like, I, there's limited time. I'd love to hang out. We don't have time. You don't have time. Some of you don't even want to hang out with me. Uh, that's cool. Whatever. But, uh, but we all, I mean, you can know pastors at this church. You can know deacons at this church. You can know missional community leaders at this church. We had a health survey, and, and one of the questions was like, do you feel known by a leader at church? Resent, like, it was almost like 95% felt like I'm known by a leader here. And they, and I know them. Because the truth is, people do know me. I mean, I, I, I go to a missional community. I, I go to a discipleship group. There's a guy in our church who knows my finances. Not by actually this, like, grand scheme of mine, because I want him to know my finances. I just reached out for some fina- financial help from an organization that helps pastors. He worked for them. And he was assigned to me. He said, yeah, I can take you on. And so he knows exactly what I make. He knows exactly how much I give. He knows every dollar and cent that I spend. And I'm really glad because I have to think about the fact that he knows everything. And he's a member of this church. I have people that know how I steward power. Because our staff members are members of this church. And they can tell you, like, this is, yeah, I mean, they can tell you here are Kent's flaws. And they can also tell you, like, if I steward power in a way that that extorts people and gets what I want from them. or, Or if or if I look to empower others. And I'm not saying I do it perfectly. I'm saying you'll probably get a little bit of like, yeah, well, this is, this is the strengths and flaws. But you can listen to people, man, you can listen to the best teaching right now across the country via your phone. You don't know them at all. And I know you can be like, what? they have this successful, like they've got this church around them, people know them. But isn't it like weekly right now that Pastors are just coming out with affairs or sexual, sexual misconduct or, or alcoholism. And, and every single time, it's like a bunch of elders and pastors and people who worked at the church and people who are in their lives are just like, I had no clue. Hey, sweetie, how are you? How you doing? Go back to daddy. All right, you can come here, but you gotta, you got to give us a prophetic word if you show up. <laughs> anyway, you go ahead and grab rotation. That's cool. Um, so I had a point. Uh, I had a point. <laughs> it's somewhere. Local church. Yeah, hey, oh, all right. <laughs> I, I think this is just a call for us to, you have to be localized on some level because you just don't know them. You don't know them. They might have the most robust teaching. It might really help. But there's still a call just to like have somebody who you can actually observe or know someone who can observe the character who, who claims to speak for the church on some level. I think also um, this concept of, of 
fruit is not just character. It's also just purely the teaching that comes from the person. So you get the character, like, hey, just what comes out of them, but also, like, the words that they say. It's interesting, this word for um, diseased fruit, like, I just always picture, like, a tree that, like, has just, like, you know, like, these really brown, wrinkly apples. You're like, that's just nasty. Like, I don't want that. But it actually is better reflected as evil or poisonous, meaning the fruit might not look bad. It, it just means that it, it has an effect when it goes into a person that creates poison and, and destruction and chaos in their life. And, and so, man, there's just a few things that need to come out of that. I mean, I, I always want to watch my own teaching, and I want to watch the teaching I give to others, and this is true for all of us, who, again, who influence anyone ever. And, and I also want to watch the teaching of others and just ask, like, does it bring life? Because sometimes I just, I, I watch, and I, I'm not going to name any names here because, man, there's, a, there's, a, there's some churches and there's some, some podcasts and some stuff that I've seen where, like, one individual, like, sermon or, or, or just person that I meet from there, it's like, I, it doesn't really tip me off. I mean, they're dealing with some interesting questions. They're dealing with some, some really good truth. They're dealing with the Bible in a really robust way. But ultimately, I start looking at, like, a large swath of people or a large swath of teaching, and it, I don't see a lot of people that are really joyful. I see a lot of people that are, like, more struggling with doubt, and, and I'm not the person who's like, we, like, I try to regularly just bring questions and be like, hey, man, that's a real question. The Bible's not going to, like, speak that clearly to it. Let's wrestle with it. But I just see a lot of people just, like, almost, like, bringing up questions just to bring up questions and deconstruct things but never constructing anything. Or I, I see just fruits of, like, certain spiritual development training that, like, man, I, everybody who I know comes out of there seems really unhealthy and unhappy. And not like the point is that everyone who comes out of like every sermon, I mean, like, I don't think you would come out of every single sermon that I teach is just like, you know, really joyful. But I want to look at like, is the teaching I'm giving or others are giving or that I'm receiving, is it causing me to look at Jesus more? Is it causing me to be more generous? I mean, just take the Sermon on the Mount. Is it causing me to be more forgiving or more bitter? Is it causing me to be one who seeks to align their life with the way that this world has been made, the way that Jesus said, hey, this is going to bring you life. Is it causing me to to love my enemies more? Is it making me look more like Jesus? And here's the thing, you have to be able to know the way of Jesus. And not like know it like I read the Bible once in college. Or I try to get through three chapters a day and I'm just like ingesting it at a level that I don't actually know what it's saying. Like, I mean, you need to really be somebody who is regularly shaped by Scripture because we're really forgetful beings. I mean, my wife and I look at time hop on her time hop like every day, which is just an app that tells you like, here's what you're doing a year ago, two years ago, five years ago, ten years ago. I'm amazed how much we forget what our own kids looked like a year ago what they could do, what they couldn't do. Where we went, like, like I don't remember going. Like, we went, to, we went on vacation. Um, I don't even remember the crazy things. If I were to die right now, my kids would have very little to re- uh, recall me from. And you're like, well, they're developing. I mean, but some of you have lost parents or moved away or, or you really quickly just start to lose little parts of them. We are a lot more like Dory than any of us want to admit. 
I mean, she has, like, uh, it's a fish, by the way, from uh, Finding Nemo. Um, something like Dory. <laughs> and Finding Dory. And I've seen both films repetitively. And one of them much better than the other. And you get a fish who just can't remember, like, three seconds from before. And, and she has to, like, live all these ways of, like, you see in one of the movies her parents, like, being like, hey, here's how you remember home. Here's how you find your way back. Here's how you remember us. Here's how you continually remember where reality is. And then you see in another movie, I mean, she gets a piece of information she wants to remember, and so she just repeats it, and she repeats it, and she just continues to push, what is it, P. Sherman, 42, Wallaby Way, Sydney? I mean, I even know it! <laughs> wow, that did not, I didn't even try it in the first service, I'm like, I don't know, but it just came out. <laughs> because she is so equating herself with what is reality, so she doesn't lose touch with it. And Christian, so many of you are losing touch with reality because you're not so immersed on a regular basis. You haven't put rhythms to try to re-engage your heart with what's true and what's real. And so some people come and they quote scripture from you and you're like, man, that's a really compelling argument. And they're using scripture. I, I never thought of it that way. And you're not immersed in it enough to be like, yeah, I understand how you would get that. But if you know the entirety of scripture, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't sound like Jesus. It doesn't sound like somebody who, who walked the earth and I actually like see his worldview, his teachings. I see all of this from him. I mean, you've got to know uh, and you've got to be able to know how to, to study the Bible too because a lot of us, I mean, you get taught things and we're all looking through Western eyes. And when I say Western eyes, I mean, I know we live in the Midwest. I'm talking about like Western society versus Eastern society. Like we all have just frames of reference that we can't help to get outside of because we are just, you're a product of your culture. You are. You're born into a place and part of getting your bearings is learning what was given to you and, and, and what you have to like start to look outside of. And the truth is, is if you look at the Bible, there's so many things. I mean, I don't know about you, like every single week I've been getting into these texts and be like these, if I really get into like an ancient Near Eastern mindset, like that metaphor means something totally different than how I interpreted it. I mean, you have to have some level. I, I, I think there's a call to humility in this. I'm not trying to call us all to be a bunch of like watchdogs starting blogs of like, well, this pastor or this, this moment or, you know, like I think we have enough of that and it's not bringing a lot of life. But we should be people that like are humbly holding on the fact like, man, I, that's different than what I taught, but I, I, I just got to put that in the framework of what I know Jesus to be because I, I, I want to get a consistent, I mean, it all should be consistent it should not contradict. There should be things that are tense. I hold on to two things at the same time, but that's true of all of life. And, and so uh, you need to have a humility. Because the, the fact is, is, again, we just don't know where we're off. I preached a year ago in a sermon, seri- or a sermon in our Genesis series. And I had this really cool, like, I jumped forward in the Old Testament narrative to when uh, Uzzah is this guy, and he's amongst the, the Levites, and uh, who are walking through the, the, the wilderness and they're carrying the Ark of the Covenant, which is like the presence of God. And it falters and he reaches up his hand to stop it and God strikes him dead. And I like use this whole thing to be like, man, like, like there's nothing he's even doing wrong in that moment. It's just the sense of God's holiness is a really stinking big deal. And when light and dark meet each other, it, it's just sometimes we have to like wrestle. That. I mean, I don't have time to go in that whole thing. I mean, it's a really crazy story. And then I sit down with my wife at date night that night and she said, yeah, um, that was wrong. And, uh, and I was like, excuse me? Like, uh, I worked on that sermon. And she quickly showed me from the text that, no, 
they were not to be carrying it on basically. I mean, they basically got a roller cart and were rolling it through the desert. And God said, no, you don't, you don't, you don't treat my presence that glibly. Like you just like lean on it and everything. Like you're using a roller, you're using the whole roller cart. You're, you're, you're carrying it along and that's not how it's meant to be carried. So there was something he was doing wrong. And I, I, I just like blew up and like, oh my gosh, I, I, I taught wrong. And like, it's on the podcast now. And like, what do I do? And, and I talked with some people. I had them listen to it. And be like, do I just show up the next day and be like five point sermon on how I taught wrong? And do I, you know, we got to keep going. We got a series here. And he said, no, like, here's what you do. For the first time it's applicable to bring up on a Sunday, you bring it up and, and you discuss it. Check. And, and he said, you have a whole lot of humility. Because let's just say that, like, I mean, people have said the best sermons. I mean, the best sermons are like 80% truth, 20% heresy. I mean, let's just, let's just put me in the best category. Stroke my ego just for a moment. And let's just say 80%. Let's say 90%. Let's say I'm killing it. 90%. 10% is, is just off because I'm limited. I, I'm trying my best. I'm trying to hold the spirit to it. But at, at the end of the day, I mean, that's the best anybody could ever hope for. I don't know which 10% it is. And you won't unless you have both a, a framework to regularly be presenting reality before yourself through scripture, through prayer, through all sorts of spiritual disciplines. We're going to go through a whole series, a whole basically year on spiritual disciplines coming up in the fall. It's going to be a lot more life-giving than that sounds. But, but presenting truth to you and holding it humbly, but holding on to it. Because ultimately, whew, again, this doesn't say like, so what do you do with a false teacher? You just oust them or you like burn them at a stake. No, it doesn't say to do anything. It says says to watch out, to be watchful, to watch for yourself, watch your own heart, your own life, your own doctrine, your own, your own life. And I don't just mean life, like what you live, like the wellspring of life. And then you watch those around you. You watch how they're influencing. You watch the fruit, what comes from their life. You watch the fruit that comes of their teaching. Does it inspire you more towards the true prophet and the true teacher? Because ultimately, we are all just simply speaking on behalf of the one who actually did speak on behalf of God because he was God. And his character wasn't just like, oh, yeah, look at me. Like, I give a lot of money away. It was, I'm willing to lay down my life for my enemies. There's no better character than this man. I mean, he had all sorts of signs. I mean, you look at that moment of like, the whole, like, people standing before God, and people always freak out. Like, what does that mean about the, you know, like, people who lived in, you know, a, a remote tribe and have never heard the name of Jesus? Look at the context. That's not what this is being taught here. It's being taught about people who claim to know the name of Jesus, to speak on his behalf, but they don't know him. And they can do all these powerful things. And Jesus, I mean, all throughout the Gospels, it's like Jesus did miracles. He drove out demons. Jesus, some of his credibility came from these very same things. But ultimately, it didn't stop there. The Gospels continue to show his character. They came to show you the fruit that came from his life. They showed you his relationships. They showed you the life-giving teaching that took people that felt like they were far from God and all of a sudden they became sons and daughters and full of life and ones who would proclaim the glories of a God who would love even me and bring me into his kingdom. And so certainly he has come for you too. We hold on to that teaching. We hold on teaching that leads us back there. We hold on parts of ourself that, we, that what we believe, it needs to lead us back there 
Not everything gets back to the cross in every single way. But ultimately, if it doesn't fit in the framework of Jesus and how he lived his life and what he taught and how he presented God to be, then we have to question if we're off. And so one way of holding on to Jesus, a spiritual discipline is, is yes, scripture, yes, prayer, and some of it is just coming and holding on to the fact that we are all broken, we are all going astray, we are all false prophets. I mean, the, the, the goodness of the gospel is not, hey, some people are going to get really good at not being false prophets. It's that Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed for the false prophets. Those who have taught wrongly, those who have held wrongly, those who uh, don't have it all together, those who are still working out on their humanity. It's not a reason to be like, oh, it's no big deal. It's a big deal. Watch out for it. But then hold it with a certain level of humility of of Jesus' kingdom comes to shed his blood, to break his body for all those who would find themselves working against his kingdom, including those who have taught explicitly against it. There's a call, there's a chance to repent, to come near, to come into the kingdom. And so we're going to have communion. If you're a Christian and you're holding on to Jesus as your true prophet, as his character, as replacing your character, as his life replacing your life, of, of him being the reason that you are in God's kingdom, then, then ultimately it's not the power. It's not, hey, I did these miracles. It's not me justifying myself. It's Jesus' life for mine. If that's your justification, then you will not be condemned before God. And you're not condemned in this moment. I ask you to come and to take a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup, it is the reminder that Jesus' body and his blood have been broken and shed for you, your justification before the Father. And if you're here and you're not there yet, and continue to wrestle. Continue to think about your worldview. I would argue it's much less consistent than mine. I know that's really, really a bold and audacious thing to say. I'm humble. I will, I will talk to you. But man, the more I press into it, the way I just see that Jesus seems to make sense of reality in a way that nobody else ever has. So I invite you to stay in your seat. We'd love to pray. We'd love to wrestle. If you come and take Jesus, then man, come and take the bread. This is the family meal. So I'll I'll pray for us, and then we'll take of these things. Father God, I pray, Lord, uh, for us to hold on to texts like these and allow them to make us humble people that are continually asking for you to shape us and for us to continually examine how we're being shaped because everyone's being shaped, Lord. Every decision, every person, everything in our life is shaping us. And I don't think that means we have to be people that run from the world. In fact, I think we should be in the world. But we can need to all the more hold on to reality, hold on to rhythms that remind us of what's true, hold on to totems in this life, that show us where we are, where we go, and how we find life. Because I just don't want to be amongst the people who are just years down the road and realizing I'm falling after a road that's not bringing life at all. But Lord, even for that person, for all people, Lord, it just takes a moment of coming into your kingdom. And they're fully brought in as sons and daughters. Lord, will we have things to pay? Will we have things to, not pay, but will we have consequences to to uphold, oh, absolutely, but, but those will not take away from our sonship, our daughtership. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd invite people in to that today, no matter where they are, and we, we might hold on to you and hold everything else very loosely. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.